what if you knew your future? What if you knew what was going to happen in the future, the future of your life? How would that affect your life? Specifically, if you knew your future, how would that affect your present day? How would that affect the way that you live in the present day? Now, that's a pretty general, pretty vague question. You'd probably say, well, it depends on what that future is. It depends on what my future specifically holds. And depending on what's communicated to me about the future, that would determine how I live in the present. See, in this text, Jesus is going to communicate the future, the future of the world. He's literally going to give us a glimpse into the future. That's the title of this teaching, A Glimpse into the Future. A Glimpse into the Future. I say glimpse because there's certain things that are detailed and other things that aren't so detailed. But Jesus, he's going to communicate to us the things that are going to happen in the end of time. But his point is not just to dump a bunch of knowledge on us. So we are aware of what's going to happen. More importantly, it's about what we do with that knowledge. How will you choose to live today in light of your knowledge of the future? The Bible often talks about this. In Philippians chapter 3, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we, all, we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Though we're not in heaven yet, Paul says, you're heavenly citizens. In light of where we know we're going, heaven, we should act like heavenly citizens now. We should do the things here that they're going to be doing there that we are going to be doing there. And as we live as heavenly citizens now in the present age, we look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We eagerly await the Lord's coming. It's something that we should be excited about. It's not something that that should instill fear in us. Now, some people, when you talk about the second coming, they do have fear. Why? Many reasons. They want to live their lives on earth. They want to start a family. They want to see their grandkids grow up. All these different reasons. But if we have a proper perspective concerning the second coming, it should be something that we warmly welcome. Right. Often, more often than not, the people that are uh, afraid of the second coming are those that aren't living godly in the present age. And they don't want the Lord back to come back because they don't know what's going to happen to them. They, they don't know that where they're where they're going to fit in concerning these end times events. Now, I want to preface this with a with a warning as we get into the text. If you've never studied end times prophecy or you've never been taught end times prophecy, uh, it's referred to as eschatology. Okay, eschatology, the study of end times. And I say that word if this is the first time you've heard the word eschatology. There's a lot of information we're going to talk about. And I'm just warning you that, warning you with that ahead of time because Jesus talks a lot uh, about a lot of different things. If you're familiar with eschatology, then some of these things you're going to be like, yeah, I already know that. You'll pick it up pretty quick. Uh, so knowing that probably for some, this is the first time learning about any sort of eschatology, I will do my best to communicate clearly, okay? And, and try to get the big picture across uh, about what's happening. Now, if you would, in Matthew chapter 23, we'll finish up 23, we'll get into 24. Verse 37, if you recall last week, we talked about the Pharisees, right? Jesus was speaking to the multitudes and the disciples, and then it seems that he starts to address this conversation towards the Pharisees, and basically what he was getting at is, don't be a Pharisee, right? And that's why we titled the teaching the way that we did last time. Now, this text connects to the rebuke of the Pharisees. He now starts to communicate towards Jerusalem. In verse 37, it says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So it says in Luke's account in Luke chapter 19 that the Lord wept during this time. He was 
literally mourning over Jerusalem. This was something that broke his heart. What broke his heart? Well, the fact that Jerusalem was going to be judged. Why were they going to be judged? Well, exactly what Jesus said. They persecuted the prophets that were before him. They weren't willing to hear the message that was delivered to them. They rejected the message, which was their invitation to the kingdom. Ultimately, they've rejected their place in the kingdom. And this breaks the Lord's heart. They're not going to go to heaven. The people that he chose, so many of them aren't going to make it. Why? Because they've rejected their king. So the Lord, he weeps, he mourns over this. One other time in scripture do we see the Lord weep. And that's in John chapter 11 when Lazarus died. And that was his buddy. But this is the point. The Lord weeps when people perish. Why? Men wasn't, they weren't meant to perish. We were never meant to perish. That wasn't the plan from the beginning. But when sin entered the world, so too did death. For the wages of sin uh, is death. And that breaks the Lord's heart. So much so, in fact, in Ezekiel, uh, God says, I take no pleasure when even the wicked die. Like even wicked, brutal, evil people that we would be like, they should die. The Lord's like, no, I don't even want them to die. It breaks me heart, my heart that any man or woman should perish. So the Lord, he's weeping over Jerusalem specifically because they're his chosen people and they are going to perish because they've rejected the message of salvation. And he says, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. He uses this uh, example of a, of a hen with his chicks. In, in other words, I wanted you to become my children and you refused. I wanted you to become sons and daughters of God, but you rejected that. You didn't want me to be in leadership over you. You didn't want me to have dominion over you. I wanted to gather you together, not just in the present, but for eternity. And you rejected that. You didn't want me in that position in your life. So he says in verse 38, see your house has left you desolate. Okay, he's speaking spiritually. He's also speaking uh, uh, practically. Jerusalem would be left desolate. It would happen in 70 AD. We'll get into that when we talk about the temple. Okay, and then he says, verse 39, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they didn't recognize Jesus in his first coming, but they're going to recognize him in his second coming. And the next time they see Jesus will be in his second coming and they'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Before they didn't think he came in the name of the Lord. Thought he was doing his own thing. Then the second time they're going to recognize this is the Messiah. We're not going to miss it the second time. That's what he's getting across. The next time they see him, they're going to know who he is. Matthew chapter 24. So this text, really the whole chapter uh, is referred to as the Olivet Discourse, okay? Olivet Discourse because he communicates this uh, on the Mount of Olives, and we'll see that in the first verse. Now, this is important before we get into it. Jesus, he's speaking to the disciples, but he's, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, okay? This is very important. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, okay? This is the Lord's summary of Revelation, all right, this is the Lord's summary of Revelation, but Revelation was written to the church, okay? We see the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. This is for the Jewish people. This is for Jews. He's communicating this to Jews. He's telling uh, the disciples what are going, what's going to happen to the Jews, okay? When you look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel is to the Jews. That's why he uses more Old Testament prophecy in Scripture than any other gospel, okay? We to look at context here and recognize who he's communicating to so that we understand why he says some of the things that he says and how it pertains to end time prophecy. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Now, sorry, I want to say one more thing. <laughs> well, I got a lot more to say, but um, <laughs> concerning this as we, uh, as we dive into it. Remember, Jesus was just rebuking the Pharisees, right? And, and a problem with the Pharisees, not only were they prideful, but they were prideful in what they thought they knew. And what did they think they knew? They thought they knew who the Messiah was going to be like, what he was going to act like. He was going to be like this David type of king. And they were wrong about the Lord's first coming. Okay, so I take that as a clear warning, as a clear indication for us that we need to approach this with humility. 
Why? The Pharisees were wrong about the second coming. I wouldn't want to be wrong about the Lord's, or say they were wrong about the first coming. I wouldn't want to be wrong about the second coming. Okay. There are many different views about this text and even revelation as a whole. We won't get into all of them. We'll talk about actually really only one of them. Uh, and then I'll communicate kind of my opinion based on my studies, not just through Matthew 24, but teaching revelation a few times. Um, so, uh, again, this is something uh, we're going to go kind of fast. I'm going to give a bunch of scriptures. A lot of it I'll paraphrase. Um, but this is something that you really should study a little more on your own. Uh, it's trying to understand revelation in one teaching. That's basically what we're doing uh, here. So Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. So Jesus went out, departed from the temple. Jesus had been teaching in the temple. When you look at the original language, this word departed is like he left it for good. He is done with his ministry in the temple. It's only going to be a couple days before he dies. He was through with his ministry at the temple. He left it and he knew that the next, uh, uh, sorry, the, the, the future of this temple and what was going to happen. And he says that in verse 2. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Okay, so this temple that's being referred to here. Let me give you a little temple history real quick. Okay, the first temple that was built was by Solomon, right? Because David had too much blood on his hands. So Solomon had the the opportunity to build the temple and he built a beautiful, extravagant temple. Now, what happened to that temple was in 586 BC, uh, the Babylonians destroyed the temple, completely destroyed, wiped out the temple. Okay. Now, then after that, Babylon took the, uh, at the same time, they took the Jewish people, captured them. It's referred to as the Babylonian exile. Okay. We see later on, or actually before that in scripture, in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, there's a prophecy concerning a Persian king named Cyrus. Okay. It mentions him by name. Okay. 150 years before he was ever even born. Okay. So this king Cyrus, God commands that this king is going to have the temple rebuilt. Okay. And this is what happened. If you look at Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus king sends Zerubbabel back to build the temple. Prophecy fulfilled. Okay, so this temple that's being referred to is the one that Zerubbabel built. But it's not usually referred to as Zerubbabel's temple. It's referred to as Herod's temple. And this is why. Though the temple was built back in Zerubbabel's day... Herod, in his reign, Herod the Great, he made all these upgrades on the temple. Okay, He made it bigger, he made it brighter, he made it better. So big, yeah, it was 500 meters long and 400 meters wide. This thing was beautiful, it was gold-plated, there were marble blocks, it was like an amazing thing to look at, okay? Referred to as Herod's Temple because of the upgrades. Zerubbabel was the one that originally built this one. Okay, so this is the second temple. Now, the temple, it became an idol to the people. It became an idol to the people. Let me show you in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to this man named Stephen, who was uh, just a very faithful man, very gifted man. Uh, and, and he is accused of blasphemy. And if you look at Acts chapter 6, verse 13, it says, They also set up false witnesses who said, This man, referring to Stephen, does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. The holy place, always in scripture, is referred to, a, is talking about the temple. Okay, we'll get into that later. But they're saying that Stephen's speaking blasphemous words against the temple. Blasphemy against the temple. The temple isn't God, okay? You can speak blasphemy against God. You can't speak blasphemy against the temple. Why? Because the temple isn't God, okay? The temple was built for God, for a place for people to worship God. But you can't blasphemy the temple, and this is what they're accusing him of. Why? Because they held the temple in such a high view, and they looked to it literally almost like a God. In fact, we learned last week in Matthew chapter 23, that the Pharisees even swore by the temple. And this was like equivalent to them swearing by God, okay? So the temple had become an idol to the people, 
But this isn't the first time that that happened, okay? The temple had become an idol to the people way back in the day, during Ezekiel's day. In fact, you can write this down. In Ezekiel chapter 24, we see this horrible, horrible uh, analogy, this lesson that the Lord is trying to get across to his people. And and what he does is he tells Ezekiel, I'm going to take from you the desire of your eyes. And he kills his wife. He has his wife dead. Okay, What the prophets had to walk through with the Lord is crazy to me. I'm glad I'm not Ezekiel. But he said this. This was the lesson. Just as I destroyed the desire of your eyes, so too am I going to profane my sanctuary. Meaning the message to him was, hey, Jerusalem, the temple is going to be destroyed. And just as I tell you not to weep over your wife dying because this is what Israel deserves, Israel too should not mourn over this because they should have expected this. They turned the temple into an idol. In fact, they would even worship idols in the temple if you study Ezekiel a little bit more. So the people are once again misusing the temple. Okay? They're holding it in a position that they simply shouldn't. Uh, not only that, but they're using it as a business. Okay, so Jesus says, I'll reread it, Matthew chapter 24, verse 2. He says, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's speaking about the temple. Jesus makes this prophecy that the temple would be destroyed. And guess what? It happens. Why? Because, point number one, Jesus knows the future. Jesus knows the future. Okay? Jesus knows the future this prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. Now, the story goes, if you study this and look into history, uh, the Caesar at that time was Caesar Titus, okay? And it wasn't his intentions to destroy the temple. It actually happened by accident. Basically, the Jews rebelled uh, against the, the, the Roman authority. So the Roman authority came into Jerusalem and start, started cleaning house, literally, okay? And then... Basically, uh, what happened was as these Roman soldiers began lighting buildings on fire, the temple accidentally caught fire. Okay, It was so inflamed that there was nothing they could do about it. Titus, history tells us, he wanted to preserve the temple. The temple accidentally catches on fire. No accident. Jesus said it was going to happen, that it would be destroyed. So basically, after that, to make the most out of the situation, the commander in charge at that time, he took all the gold out of the temple and all the valuable things. So the temple was literally completely destroyed. Not one stone left. They took it all apart to get the the, the gold from in between the blocks there in the temple. Um, so Jesus, when he says this, he says, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's speaking literally, and it actually happened so much so. The temple was so obliterated uh, that even today and in past history, archaeologists find, a, find it very difficult to understand exactly the layout of the temple and, and what it looked like and where it was because it was completely destroyed just as the Lord said it. So Jesus, he knows the future. But he doesn't just know the future of the temple and the future of Jerusalem. He knows our future. He knows our future. He knows exactly what we're going to walk into. He knows the good seasons. He knows the bad seasons. He knows who we are and who we're going to be. You remember, it'll happen soon here in actually two chapters, Matthew chapter 26. Uh, Jesus, he has a conversation with Simon Peter and he tells Simon Peter, hey, in the next 24 hours before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. I know your future, Simon, and it isn't pretty, okay? You're going to deny me three times, Simon. It's like, no, I would die for you, all these different things. What happens? Simon Peter denies him three times. See, the Lord, he knows when we're going to mess up. He knows our future, when we're going to mess up, when we're going to fall into sin, when we're going to make mistakes. But he also knows, he also knows the completed product. He knows what he's going to produce in us. In fact, when you look at the first encounter that Jesus has with Simon Peter, back in John chapter 1, verse 42, John 1, 42, he says this, You are Simon, son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas. Cephas is translated as stone. You're Simon, you are prideful, you are arrogant, you speak before you should, you do all these different things that are bad. These are your character flaws, 
but you shall be called Cephas. I know who you are. I know when you're going to mess up, but I also know who I'm making you into be. See, the Lord knows our future, both, both our mess ups and the finished product, right? Philippians chapter 1, 6, Philippians 1, 6 says this, being confident of this very thing that he who has uh, begun a good work in you will complete it in the, uh, until the day of Jesus Christ, the Lord Despite the fact that he knows our future and knows our future mess-ups, we can be confident that he's going to complete the work. He will make us the men and women that he's called us to be. He knows our future. We can be confident that he's going to finish the work in us in the future. Jesus, he knows the future. He predicts this event happening, the temple being destroyed, and this literally happens. Exactly what he says happens. Okay, so the rest of the things that he communicates in here that haven't happened yet, we can expect them to happen exactly the way the Lord said it. Why? Because the first part of it actually happened. Okay, there is some partial fulfillments of some of the things that happens here in this text, and we'll talk about it. But the whole thing hasn't been fulfilled yet. And I'll tell you why. As we continue, Matthew chapter 24 Verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, okay? So he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. This is ironic, okay? Where he's sitting and communicating these things is the same exact place that he's going to come back to, okay? In Zechariah chapter 14, you can write this down. Zechariah 14, 3 to 4, Jesus is going to come back in his second coming and stand on the Mount of Olives. So he's telling them from the very place that he's going to come back to, Okay? As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? Okay. He only communicated to them so far about the temple being destroyed. They're like, when will these things be? But then they ask him another question. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The disciples are wrongfully assuming that all these things are going to take place at the same time. Oh, the temple is going to be destroyed and your second coming and the end of the age. That's all happening at the same time. But they're really asking him two questions. When the, is the temple going to be destroyed? And when is your second coming going to happen? Now, Jesus, as we walk through the scripture, he's going to focus on that second, that second question. He doesn't tell him exactly when the temple is going to be destroyed. He tells him that it's going to happen. He's going to focus on this other question. When is the second coming going to happen in the end of the age? Okay, the end of the age if you want to study this on your own a little more, there's seven ages, okay, throughout the Bible. Uh, the age that's being referred to here is the end of the church age and the beginning of the kingdom age, okay? The church age will start in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon the people. The church is birthed in that moment. The end of the church age will happen at the rapture and then the millennial kingdom will happen after that. Okay, so when is the church age going to end? And when is your kingdom going to begin is what they're asking him. Okay, specifically focusing on the millennial reign, which we'll get into uh, a little bit more. Okay, Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Right off the bat, he says, don't let people deceive you about the end times. There's a lot of deception that goes on about the end times. Like people say, I know the date when Jesus is going to come back. Okay, don't believe them. If they say it, Jesus says no one knows when these things are going to happen. Or if someone says all of these things have happened, I'll show you why I believe that that isn't the truth. Okay, but don't be deceived by these things. In other words, don't just take someone's word for it. Study these things on your own. And that's what I highly encourage you to do. Study this end time stuff on your own. Form your own opinions based on based on scripture and what you find. Don't let anyone deceive you. Okay, and he says, verse five, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Okay, let's break this back down. First in verse 5, he says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. He's speaking of antichrists. Okay, plural. Let me show you. 
in 1 John chapter 2, in 1 John chapter 2, it says there's going to be many that come claiming that they're me, claiming that they're the Messiah. And it's so crazy throughout history how many people claimed this after the Lord, uh, the Lord passed, claiming they were, they were the Messiah. John tells us about this. He warns us in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, capital A, the Antichrist, singular, is coming. Even now, many Antichrists, plural, have come. By which we know that it is the last hour. Okay, There's many Antichrists, little a, there's one Antichrist. It is very important to understand as we look into history. Many people will ask, who is the Antichrist, the big A, who is he? Well, we don't know because he hasn't come yet uh, according to the scriptures. Now, I'll explain this in further detail. Now, let me preface this and say, uh, okay, so uh, many reformed theologians, and, and I have a lot of respect for many reformed teachers. There's many that I even study uh, and, and listen to what they have to say. I just don't agree with everything they say, uh, especially when it concerns the end times. Okay, so there's respect there, but I want to communicate why I don't agree with them concerning this stuff. Uh, they're referred to, uh, many of them, as amillennialists. Okay, that's a millennialist. Okay, and what they believe, amillennialism literally means no millennium. Okay, it means no millennium. Now, that's not what they necessarily believe. That's what the word says. But when you look at amillennialists, what they believe uh, is that basically we're presently in the second coming. That we're in the millennial reign right now. And when Jesus said that he was going to come and stand on the Mount of Olives and establish his kingdom, he was speaking spiritually. Okay, now that doesn't line up with the rest of the things that he's saying here. And I'll communicate that further. Uh, but one of the other things they believe is the rapture is not an event. It's just a, uh, you know, a spiritual thing that happens to, to everyone. But they, most of them, many of them believe that Nero was the Antichrist. That Nero was the Antichrist. Now, there's a problem with this. Nero didn't commit what was called the abomination of desolation. Don't get confused. It hasn't. We'll get into it in a minute. Okay, I'll tell you what that is later. He didn't commit the abomination of desolation. Okay, he, he didn't rise from the dead. Revelation chapter 13 says that Nero, that not Nero, the Antichrist will rise from the dead. Also, Revelation was believed to be written uh, around 95, 96 AD. Okay, Nero died in 68 AD. All right. So John's still talking about the Antichrist when Nero's far gone. Okay. So uh, to say that it's Nero, it just doesn't line up uh, with the rest of scripture. And there's many other reasons behind that. All millennialists, many of them believe that it was Nero. Okay. But when you take that viewpoint, they'll say all these events already happened, but they haven't happened fully. And I'll explain to you why as we get into this a little deeper. All right. So Others say, let me add this, others say that it will be Nero, Nero who'll come back from the dead. That could be true because we see in Revelation chapter 13 that the Antichrist will die and rise from the dead. He'll come back. So if it's Nero reincarnate, that's fine. Ultimately, it's Satan reincarnate. We know that from scripture. Um, but the point is, Jesus says there's going to be many, there will be many that come in my name. Okay, many, not just one. There will be many antichrists. And when you look at history, you see many antichrists. Antiochus Epiphanes, who defiled the temple back during the Maccabees. He was a, a, a Greek emperor. Uh, you look at Nero and how he persecuted Christians and Jews. Uh, you look at Hitler, right? You, you look at Mussolini. You, you look at some of these people that like carried the spirit of the antichrist. And that's what John tells us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse John chapter 4, the Antichrist, yes, there's a person, but there's also a spirit of the Antichrist. Let me show you. 1 John chapter 4, I should have held my place. Verse uh, 13, verse 3, sorry. In every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in 
the world. The spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. Back then, people would say that Jesus was a spirit being, but he didn't really come in the flesh. And the disciples were like, no, we have eyewitness account. We saw him. We spent time with him. We ate with him. We know he came in the flesh. Now people say that, oh yeah, he came in the flesh, but he wasn't really God. The argument back then wasn't that he wasn't God. It was that he didn't come in the flesh. He was too spiritual to carry a human body. It's interesting how time changes. But the point is, he says, the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world today. And we see that through like uh, humanism, right? Uh, people that... Uh, that man is the end all be all man is essentially god it doesn't get any greater than man we are the best we'll make things happen for ourselves you look at evolution how people try to rob god of 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 the creation account and and the glory that's revealed through the creation story we see the spirit of the antichrist manifest itself in so many different ways says that spirit is with the world today even back then john tells us Back to Matthew chapter 24. He says, not, will the, not only will there be many that come in his name, saying that he, they're the Christ, verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be a lot more war going on. Now, when you look at history, this is fascinating. Okay? There was more bloodshed through war in the 20th century than all previous 19th centuries combined. Okay, approximately 200 million people died from war just in the 20th century. World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, right? Just from one century. And he says there's going to be more and more wars. We see that even in the last century. Uh, it's um, based on the research that I looked at from uh, the first century to the 19th century. It's somewhere around 130 million. Okay. But it's more in the one century than all those centuries combined. That's fascinating. But it's true because Jesus said it was going to happen. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be more and more war going on. And then he says, but the end is not yet. Okay. Meaning just because there are more wars doesn't mean the end's right now. Okay. Uh, it means we're getting closer to the end, but it doesn't mean that it's right this second. Just because there's more wars, we're just going to see this pattern continue to grow before the end comes. <clears throat> Verse 7, for a nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Okay? He says all these are the beginning of sorrows. This pattern we see is the beginning of sorrows. That literally means the beginning of labor pains. Right? Uh, uh, women, whoever has had a baby or seen that happen, right? We know that when labor pains start and the contractions start getting closer and closer together, what's going to happen? A baby is going to get born, okay? So the Lord is saying, as these things continue more and more, we see more of them, we know that the end is right around the corner, okay? The tribulation will be birthed, all right? And he speaks of the tribulation here, and they will deliver you up to tribulation, okay? This is believed to be the beginning of tribulation. We can't say it definitely, but this, a lot of the events that are taking place that Jesus is communicating are directly connected to the tribulation. He says the beginning of sorrows, basically the beginning of the end. And one of the things that he mentions, yes, famines, pestilences. He also mentions earthquakes. And and this is pretty interesting. I'll read you a little statistic. Earthquakes are constantly increasing specifically magnitude six earthquakes or or greater. And there's this guy named Tom Parsons. I looked into this. A, A research geophysicist at USGS, he says, we have recently experienced a period that has had one of the highest rates of great earthquakes ever recorded. Okay, so as we see some of these things happening more and more, you look at pestilences, famines, plagues, all these different things growing. As we see that pattern, we'll know we're close, okay? But we can't say the end could still be a thousand years from now. We, we really don't know for sure. There are going to be some other events that Jesus communicates that we know when that happens, it's time. It's go time. It really is the end, okay? So he says, part of this, they'll deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Who's he speaking to? Disciples. Again, this is a Jewish audience, okay? When the tribulation starts, 
there's going to be a mass persecution of Jewish people. We see also that there's going to be people that get saved during the tribulation. They're going to be persecuted as well. Whoever accepts the name of the Lord, they're going to be beheaded. Okay. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 24, you'll understand this more as we uh, unpack this. Verse 10. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Now, this is important to note. Um, remember, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to a Jewish audience. Once the tribulation starts, the church will be raptured. Okay, The church will be taken up before the tribulation starts. Let me show you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, one of the key references that talks about the rapture, and literally we could do a whole teaching on this, but it's not happening today. First Thessalonians chapter 4, this isn't the only reference to the rapture. We even see reference to the rapture back in Genesis uh, with Enoch before the flood came. Enoch was taken up and then the flood came. We see this pattern with the Lord. He takes the person up and then tribulation happens. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Okay, the trumpet of God is key. The trumpet of God is only mentioned two times in scripture. This is the second time. The first time is back when God declared the Ten Commandments to Moses. He wrote them on his finger. It also says he spoke them as the trumpet of God. There are many trumpets in the Bible and many trumpets of angels. Don't get confused. There's only the trumpet of God mentioned twice. Okay, very important to understand as we look at the rest of this. Look at verse 17. Sorry, finish verse 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Okay, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, synonymous with this passage, same person that wrote it, Paul, he talks about the rapture and the glorified bodies that we're going to have in heaven. And he says it's going to happen in an instant, in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye. The Bible's talking about an event, something that's going to take place in an instant, not something that just spiritually happens to everyone. It's talking about an actual event that takes place in the twinkling of an eye in a moment. A moment speaks of an event, okay? So the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. Let me uh, give you kind of a general uh, beginning anyways. Uh, we'll get into this. I'll show you scripture to support this. Um, the rapture will happen. Then the seven year tribulation will happen. Okay. There's nothing that says that it's going to be like back to back. It could happen back to back. All we know is the rapture is going to happen. And then the tribulation is going to happen. Okay. It could happen some years later. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say it has to happen exactly like this. When you look at scripture, it appears like there's a pretty close timeline between when the rapture happens and the tribulation happens, but the Lord's not bound to that because he doesn't clarify. Okay. So the church will be raptured. So the rest of this stuff that's being communicated, it's what's going to happen to the Jewish people and also uh, some references to other people that are there on the earth that we'll discuss. Okay, the church is not going to experience this. Okay, let me continue. Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Okay, so Jesus is building off what he was previously communicating, and he keeps saying, and then, and then, and then. Why? Because he's preparing us for the future. That's point number two. Jesus prepares us for the future. Jesus prepares us for the future. Now, that's what he's doing with the disciples. He's preparing them for a future that they're not even going to experience much of this, okay? Some of them will even be dead before the temple uh, is destroyed. But anytime the Lord communicates to us or tries to get something across to us, it's to prepare us for the future. The things that are happening in your present life right now, the Lord will use to prepare you for the future. No season it goes to waste. God wastes nothing. So everything that he's doing in your life, it might be tribulation as we're talking about in the text. It might be a season of blessing. It might be uh, some hardship, some, uh, some conflict, some other type of personal issues, whatever the case may be, the Lord 
word, we can be confident that he's using these things to prepare us for the future. But we got to be mindful of it. We got to see it as such. These things aren't just happening to happening. God, God, how are you using these things to prepare me for the next season? I can tell you time and time again, every season of my life, I almost wish I, I, I embraced it more because something later comes up and I'm like, dang, that's why that happened. And if I was mindful, if I would have just used it, taken advantage of it, I'd be ready, but I blew it and now I'm not ready. The Lord, he doesn't just know our future. He prepares us for our future. So he tells the disciples, these are some of the things that are going to happen in the future. There'll be many false prophets. And you look at that, that doesn't get less and less as time goes on. It gets more and more, okay? There are always false prophets, but there's more and more religions today than there were back then. And they grow and uh, they, they, they develop a, a doctrine, a gospel that's different than the gospel that the Lord preached. You look at uh, word of faith movements. Uh, you look at prosperity gospel. God only wants you to be like, uh, ha- have, have good, easy life and have all the stuff that you pray for, have this abundance of financial material things. Like that doesn't line up with scripture. That's taking verses out of context, forming a doctrine. That's another gospel. And the Lord says through Paul in Galatians chapter one, uh, verses six to nine, he says this. If you receive any other gospel other than the gospel that I preach to you, Even if by an angel of the Lord, let him be accursed. Why? He says, this is the gospel that we delivered to you, that Jesus was fully God, fully man. He died, he was buried, he rose again from the dead. If we trust in him and have relationship with him, we will rise too. When you try to take pieces of that apart, Jesus isn't fully God. Yeah, he's a man, but he's really Michael the archangel. Uh, or whatever the case may be, when you take apart that gospel and believe different parts about it, you're believing a different gospel. Okay, false prophets have been around forever. There's going to be even more of them that come up as we get closer to the end. And it says they will deceive many in verse 11. Many are going to believe what they say. And you look at some of the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and all these different things. People follow these. They believe these false prophets and they're being led astray. And this isn't coming against different religions. This is speaking the true gospel. And this is a warning because Jesus says, beware, people are going to be deceived. And they're literally going to go to hell because they were deceived by false prophets. So he continues on, verse 12. He says, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. We'll get into this a little bit more later. Uh, again, specifically speaking to the Jews, once the tribulation starts, there are going to be Jews that endure to the end. One third of the Jews, we'll see that in Zechariah chapter 13. We'll see two thirds of them are destroyed, are killed by the Antichrist and uh, other um, groups working under him. Okay, so he says those who endure till the end will be saved. Now, this speaks of Jews specifically that will be saved because they endure the tribulation. Uh, but we also see in scripture, uh, these people called tribulation saints. Okay. Tribulation saints. Uh, let me give you an example. You have a friend or a family member that you shared the gospel with and they didn't receive it. Anyone? Yeah, I do. Right. There's like people that you've shared the gospel with or you told about Jesus and they're like, I want nothing to do with that. Okay. See, now say that person, like you shared some of this with them, this teaching, you're like, Hey, you know, there's going to be a rapture. And like, if you don't believe the Lord, like you're going to go through the tribulation. Like, yeah, okay, I don't believe any of that stuff. And uh, then it happens and you're gone all of a sudden. And they're like, oh, shoot. Maybe what they were saying is true. And because of your testimony beforehand, they come to know the Lord. But it won't just be your testimony. We're going to see there's 144,000 anointed Jews. Okay, there's no question about that. They're anointed Jews. We see it in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14. They're Jewish virgins anointed by the Spirit of God to preach the gospel. So people will be getting saved during the tribulation, but the church will be gone. Okay, now those people that get saved during the tribulation, you got Jews, you got tribulation saints. You could technically say Jews are tribulation saints as well. Okay, but he says there's going to be those that endure to the end. When you get saved during the tribulation, it is not going to be easy to keep your faith. Why? Because you have to take the mark of of the beast if you want to be a part of the economic system that he uh, that the Antichrist develops. If you don't take the mark of the beast, you can't buy food for your family. So literally, you might starve to death. 
speaks of famines, okay? So there's going to be a lot of persuasion for you to submit to the authority of the Antichrist because he controls the whole world. One world government, one world religion, one world economy. If you're not for him, you're against him. And those people that are against him that believe in the Lord, it says many, if not all of them, are going to be beheaded, okay? So enduring to the end is going to be much harder then than it is now. Whoever says, I'll accept Jesus later, if you accept him during the tribulation, sorry for you. He says, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, okay? So we see a promise in scripture that the gospel will be preached in all the world. Now, we know the great commission is for us to go to all nations and preach the gospel, but if we fail in that, uh, the Lord has uh, another opportunity already set in stone. If you look at Revelation chapter 14, you can write it down. We see this angel that flies around the entire world preaching the gospel. Okay? An angel flies around the whole world preaching the gospel. So if we fail on the Great Commission, the angel's got our back. Okay? And the angel's going to make sure everyone hears the gospel. This is how this promise will be fulfilled, even if the church doesn't fulfill it. Okay? Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the... Listen carefully. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Okay, this is important. This is one of those things. Matthew does this a couple of times. That's his words. You better understand this. Okay, if you want to understand the end times, you must understand the abomination of desolation. Okay, and he says, spoken of by Daniel. All right, Jesus is communicating this in a way that hasn't been fulfilled yet. Okay, this is going to happen in the future. It wasn't fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes. Jesus is saying that it's going to be fulfilled. Okay, Uh, if you know history about Antiochus Epiphanes, he desecrated the temple, sacrificed pigs on the altar. Um, And that's that's another story. Uh, Anyways, if you look back at Daniel chapter 9, he references this a few times. Uh, in Daniel 9, and Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. We'll look at two of them, okay? In Daniel chapter 9, we talked about the, the 70 weeks in the past, okay? Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand from that the going forth of the command to restore and, restore and build Jerusalem, that was Nehemiah, back in Nehemiah chapter 2, that command went out. Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, okay? Uh, we discussed this in the past. That word week in the Hebrew is the word Shabua. It doesn't necessarily mean a week. It means an increment of seven, okay? So he's really talking about seven years. It's not seven weeks when you look at the original language. He says sh- there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. S- uh, that's 600 and, uh, sorry, 669 weeks altogether. That's 483 years in the Hebrew calendar. He's talking about when Jesus would come, and that's exactly what Jesus will fulfill. Uh, We'll see that later as we get through Matthew. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even troublesome times, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come is the Antichrist, okay? Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with blood, with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, okay? That one week is seven years, okay? In the beginning of the tribulation, what the Antichrist is going to do is he's going to solve peace in the Middle East. He's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel and the surrounding nations, okay? That's in the beginning of the tribulation, the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Look what happens. But in the middle of the week, okay, three and a half years in, this is referenced many, many times, this three and a half year mark, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall one who make desolate, referring to the abomination of desolation, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Three and a half years Into the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to perform what is called the abomination of desolation. Look back at Matthew chapter 24 to understand this a little better. I'll explain to you what it is. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Okay, The holy place, as I mentioned before, is always referring to the temple in scripture. Okay, The abomination of desolation is going to happen in the temple. 
Okay, some will say, oh, they were just a holy place was just referring to Jerusalem. Uh, that's not the case because Nero ever never entered into the temple. Neither did Caesar Titus. Okay, he's speaking specifically of an event that's going to happen in the temple. And this is the event. First, uh, second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, chapter four. Sorry, <clears throat> chapter two. Verse three, it says, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. This is speaking of the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the abomination of desolation. Just as Daniel said, it was going to happen in the sanctuary. Basically, what will happen is this Antichrist that solves uh, peace in the Middle East. Israel loves him at the time. Halfway through the tribulation, he's going to come into the temple and demand to be worshipped as God. He's going to claim to be God. He's going to reveal who he really is. Okay, And then we're going to see here in a minute, Israel's going to flee from him. Okay, because he reveals his true colors, his true nature, his true intentions. This is the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist coming in the temple, demanding to be worshipped by God, desecrating the temple. Okay, Uh, we also see, if you want to write this down, down, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. We also see another reference to that three and a half year mark uh, when the abomination of desolation is going to happen. And you see it a bunch of times in Revelation as well. All right. Matthew chapter 24, verse 16. So after this happens, the abomination of desolation, three and a half year mark, okay? Three and a half year mark also enters into the great tribulation. You have the tribulation, uh, um, in total is seven years. The great tribulation is three and a half years. We'll talk about that in a second as well. It says in verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Basically what he's getting at is when the abomination of desolation happens and the Antichrist reveals his true nature and his true intentions, Israel, you better run, okay? Because he's coming after you and you're going to be killed. You're going to be destroyed. So run. He says, if you're pregnant, that's going to slow you up, okay? If you're nursing, that's going to slow The Sabbath, you can't work on the Sabbath. You can't run on the Sabbath. Hope it's not on the Sabbath. Hope it's not during winter because you have to get out and get out quickly, okay? Now... We see a partial fulfillment of this happened back in 70 AD when Rome ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and the people fled. Okay, the people fled. But I'll show to you in other scriptures uh, that the full fulfillment of this hasn't happened. One of the reasons why is if you look at uh, Revelation chapter 12, this event is also spoken of 30 plus years after the temple was destroyed. So John's communicating in a way that it hasn't happened yet. And we see this reference in Revelation chapter 12 uh, to this woman with 12 stars on her head. He's talking about Israel, okay? And we also see this red dragon. He's talking about Satan, the serpent, okay? And then he says in verse 6 of Revelation 12, Then the woman, speaking of Israel, okay, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. 1,260 days is three and a half years. The abomination of desolation is going to happen at the three and a half year mark. Judea, the Israelites are going to flee, but they're going to flee to a place that God prepared, it says. There's a place that God has prepared for the Israelites. Now, we can't be completely positive about this place, but there looks like there's some indication, if you want to write this down, in Isaiah chapter 16, Verses 1 to 4, in Isaiah chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, God tells the Moabites to receive his outcasts. Those that have been cast out from their land, receive them into your arms. So many people believe that there's this place in ancient Moab referred to as Petra. Okay, it's a place that exists today. Okay, that this is the place where God has prepared for Israel to flee to. Again, we can't say that confidently. Maybe it happens there, maybe not. But we know God's prepared a shelter, a safe place for some of these Jews uh, to be saved through the tribulation. Because what's going to happen? 
Let me show you in Zechariah chapter 13. When the tribulation starts, until the end of the tribulation, we're going to see that the nation of, of Israel, many of the people are destroyed. Okay, I referenced this, but let me show you. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8. Sorry, look at verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. Okay, Two-thirds of the Israelites are going to die. Okay, Look at what happens in verse 9. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people's, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Through the tribulation, this refining fire that he's talking about, uh, two-thirds of the Jews will perish. A third of them not only will have their lives saved, but they'll recognize the Lord as their Savior. Their souls will be saved as well. Okay? Matthew chapter 24 Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. Remember I mentioned that great tribulation, three and a half years, abomination of desolation marks the beginning of the great tribulation. So we've got three and a half years left. Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor ever shall be. Okay, listen to what he's saying. The world has never faced anything like this, and specifically Israel. Now think about all the stuff that Israel's gone through in our history. If you're going to try to say that this was uh, when Rome ransacked Jerusalem, it was like the Babylonian exile was worse than that. And not only that, the Holocaust was much worse than that. He says, this is a time that's incomparable. We're going to look at the Holocaust and be like, oh my gosh, that was nothing compared to the great tribulation and what happened to the Jewish people. That's what he's getting at. The world has never faced anything like that. We can't say that this event, what happened in 70 AD, is that event. When Jesus says there's no event like this, the trauma, uh, the devastation that will occur. Verse 22. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Okay, so Jesus, he goes from the tribulation to the great tribulation. In other words, things are going to get worse before they get better. That's point number three. These last two points will be quick. We'll finish here in a few. The future will get worse before it gets better. And we look at all the devastating things that are happening in the world and you're like, look at like things like abortion and, and war and AIDS and all these different things. It's like, God, why are you allowing these to happen? But when you have a proper perspective, those are clear indications that yes, things are going to keep getting worse, but they're going to get better. <laughs> those, all those bad things have to happen before things get better. Now, this can also be true in our lives. Sometimes... We have to go through seasons of hardship, seasons of difficulty, seasons of tribulation before we can give, go through seasons of, of blessing. Why? Well, God uses tribulation to draw us closer to him. In fact, that's why he uses this tribulation in scripture to draw the Jews close to him. Right, And the closer we draw to him, the better seasons are, whether they are difficult or easy. When we're close to the Lord, things are just better. Okay, Future gets worse before it gets better. Now, he says, for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Sorry, those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Okay, so he's saying if, if the tribulation was more than seven years, there would be no Jews left to speak of. Okay, if it was longer, he shortened it so that at least that third could be saved. Matthew chapter 24, verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Listen to what he says, verse 23. If anyone says you look here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. If someone has to tell you that Jesus came back, they are lying to you. He said, nobody's going to have to tell you. No one's going to have to tell you that Jesus came back. He's going to come back suddenly. It says, every eye will see him. Okay, so if people, when people say the Lord came back and, and uh, he came back through his judgment in 70 AD, if someone has to tell you the Lord came back, it's not true. He's saying that. If someone has to communicate this to you, don't believe it. You're going to know. 
No one's going to have a question of whether or not it's not going to be something that's debated. It's not going to be like, oh, did Jesus come back? Or I'm not sure. Maybe he come back, came back earlier. Maybe. He, no, we're going to know. He says, if anyone tells you otherwise, do not believe them. Every eye will see him. It's what Revelation chapter one, verse seven says. Every single eye will see the Lord come back. Okay. It's going to be like lightning flashes from the east to the west. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be serious. It's going to be audible. It's going to be visual. It's like you could be blind in death and you're still going to know. Like he's going to make sure you know he came back. This is not something that will be up for, uh, uh, you know, being skeptical or, or, or wondering about. And then he says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Okay, speaking to the end of the tribulation. Okay, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of, he- of the heavens will be shaken. So there's going to be cosmic disturbances just before the Lord comes back. Uh, Joel references this in Joel chapter 2 verse 10. Uh, in Revelation chapter 6 we see uh, John references this as well. Seems like there's going to be weird stuff going on in the sky. Um, we see a, a blood moons referred to. There's going to be like weird stuff happening. I don't know if the Lord's using that to get our attention so we look up. I'm not sure. We just see evidence of it in scripture. Verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay? All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see them. All the tribes are going to see the Lord, the Son of Man, coming in the clouds, coming in His glory. Now, this was a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. I'll paraphrase some of this. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 13 and, and 14, uh, it says, uh, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, he's going to establish a, a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that cannot be taken away from him. Okay, what Daniel's talking about is the Lord's second coming. This is what's going to happen. Okay, the Lord, after the tribulation, after the seven-year tribulation, it says in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, he's going to come, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. What he's going to do after that, we see later, later in Revelation chapter 19, that's when the battle of Armageddon is going to happen. Okay, He's going to destroy all the nations that are coming against Israel. And it says he's going to come not by himself. He's going to come with ten thousands of his saints, meaning an innumerable number. He's talking about the church. The church is going to come with the Lord at his second coming. I don't know if we'll be fighting or watching, okay? It doesn't tell us that, okay? We know the Lord's going to be fighting. And he says that he's going to have, take them out with the sword. Okay, we see that at the end of Revelation 19 as well. So you have, let me give you a timeline. Just picture this, okay? You have the rapture, seven-year tribulation, halfway through the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, okay? Antichrist reveals himself, who he really is, uh, demands to be worshipped as God, okay? Israel gets persecuted more, end of the tribulation, Jesus comes back, he takes out the nations that are coming against Israel. That's called the Battle of Armageddon. And that's when he establishes his millennial reign. That's in Acts chapter 20. So to say that the Lord is reigning in his millennial reign now, he didn't really mean a thousand years. He wasn't being serious. Jesus says he's going to come and stand on the Mount of Olives as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. He, he means these things literally. They haven't happened yet. So this is what's going to happen. And then look, verse 31. Last thing, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. OK, so we see at the end a uh, battle of Armageddon, he's going to gather his elect who are the elect. He's speaking to the Jews. He's speaking about the Jews. This is where he'll gather the third of the Jews that he preserved during the tribulation that actually recognize him. It says they're going to look at the one whom they pierced and recognize they made a mistake. We missed the Messiah. Okay, it says there's going to be a trumpet, but it's not the trumpet of God. It's the trumpet of angels. This is so important to note. Many trumpets of angels, many trumpets across the board, but only trumpet of God mentioned twice in Scripture. Okay, many people use this and uh, uh, form the opinion that there's the post-tribulation rapture, meaning uh, that will the church will go through the whole tribulation and then the Lord will rapture us up ever after that. But it says this, Paul tells us we 
the children of God aren't subject to wrath. And we see the tribulation is a form of God's wrath. It says that the wrath of the lamb in Revelation chapter six, we aren't subject to wrath, but deliverance. The Lord says, pray that you're worthy to escape these things. In Luke chapter 21, after he uh, does the Olivet Discourse in Luke's account. So there will be those that escape these things. And there's many other reasons why uh, I'm a pre-trib, okay? Uh, but you can, you can study some of this stuff on your own. Now, the point of this isn't just to dump a bunch of knowledge on you and information, okay? Now, we have to because the Lord's talking about it, and I want to give you understanding. But the point is, and the point that the Lord's getting at is this. In light of your knowledge of the future, how will you respond in the present? Okay? Though the church isn't going to go through these things, but other people will. Jews will go through these things. Any unbeliever is going to go through these things. In light of your knowledge of the future, how will you live in the present? In Titus 2, uh, 11 to 14, says this. This is where we'll end. Titus 2. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. There's a lot here, but to sum it up, Paul says, grace isn't just something we receive, it's something that teaches us. It's something that that teaches us how to live in the present age in light of our blessed hope in light of the lord's second coming okay we're to live to to deny ungodliness and worldly lust looking for the blessed hope the lord coming back okay And, and, and our knowledge of that remember hope is a confident expectation in the bible it's not wishful thinking it's something we can be certain about i'm so certain that the lord's coming back how am i going to live in the present age and that's for all of us. In light of your knowledge of the Lord coming back, how are you going to live today? Okay, And, and thinking about what other people are, are going to walk through, that they're going to experience the tribulation. And not only that, hell, if they don't know the Lord, is that enough to get you to share the gospel? Knowing that they're going to face these horrendous things. Is that enough? Because the Lord's telling them something that they're not going to walk through. He's telling them something that so that they know not just what's going to happen, but Who's it's gonna ha- who it's going to happen to. So that they'll get the gospel across so that people will get saved and they won't have to endure these things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and so much information you have in your word, God. I pray that it wouldn't just be knowledge for us, though, that it would, uh, it would change our lives in the, in the way that we uh, look um, to the future and look at the present day. God, I pray that... We would be encouraged to eagerly wait for your coming, that it wouldn't be something that we're afraid of. Uh, Lord, and I pray if there's anyone that is afraid of it, um, that you would reveal to them why. If it's because they're not right with you, I pray that they would make themselves right with you, that they would accept you and pursue a relationship with you. Lord, you say this is something that we should be excited about, you coming back. Not the tribulation, but what you're going to do after that and the kingdom that you're going to establish. Lord, so we look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen.